Hi there, Richard. Hi there, how are you going? It's hoping the postman doesn't come and the dog starts barking, but you'll have to edit that out if it does. <laughs> no, we always... I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in because... Like a bit of atmosphere here. You, you, we do approve of dogs in the football library. Uh, Johnny Nick, John Nicholson, looks after them. Um, I think he puts them in the Andy Holt lounge. Uh, and then if Roy Keane doesn't like the look of the dog, then he stops them at the door. That's the arrangement <laughs> in this football library. And have you had the dog throughout lockdown? Yeah, she actually had, had um, pups just before lockdown. Oh, Mazel Tov. We, we missed out on the boom, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, the prices tripled. I think my brother had arranged to get his just before lockdown, and little Goji, who's a border terrier, they've had her for a year. Yeah. But yeah, that is rotten luck because I know the prices exploded because that's the one thing you're allowed to get. Uh, are you in the Midlands currently? Yeah, yeah. I, I lived between Stourbridge and Kidderminster. Ah, we talk. Uh, in fact, the day before. Uh, this show goes out. So quite a quick turnaround because I want to plug Ticket to the Moon, the rise and fall of a European champion, published by De Cubatin in 2018 and priced 4 on Kindle. Do you know you can get it for a fiver? What a great steal, that is. Yeah. In, well, it's from the place that don't pay enough tax. But if you're looking for books that aren't in the football library, go there. But this book is in... Uh, Quickly mentioning uh, you are at Big Star Rich on Twitter because you went it alone. Have you gone it alone for about 10 years now? Yeah, um, I was a journalist for a good while, uh, 15 or 20 years, and then I sort of sidled across to the agency world, became a cricket agent. I was still doing journalism work at the same time, but I, I don't do any journalism now. I just write books and manage cricketers mainly. That's the dream. My claim to fame is that Mum's partner knows Nick Compton very well. Oh yeah, and I also don't know him personally. Yep. seems a nice guy. Very nice lad. I saw an England game with him once upon a time, um, and in fact, um, Martin played golf with Ben Hutton the other week. Another Middlesex player. Yep. Um, I I haven't watched so much cricket since it was on Channel Four. So the the last time the West Indies were very 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 good. I ghosted uh, Mushtaq Mohammed's autobiography. A great cricketer for Pakistan made his debut in the late fifties and retired in the late seventies. But he became a good friend of mine as we're both from the Birmingham area. So uh, that was it was a really interesting book to write. He had a great career, fifty odd Test matches and. Played for Northamptonshire in county cricket, so yeah, he was, a, he was a really good friend of mine and had a great career. Is he still with us, Mushtaq Mohammed? Yeah, yeah, he's um, what would he be now? Probably late seventies now, Mushti. But uh, yeah, still got a sharp mind, very very intelligent cricket guy. Uh, we, we're probably due a dinner very soon, but obviously this lockdown business hasn't been good for socialising, has it? Are you going to invite the Prime Minister of Pakistan? To this dinner? Uh, probably not. <laughs> but I'm sure he's got a bit bigger and better things to do than come out for a dinner with me and his old captain, Mushta. I know Pakistan is um, is a very interesting place. Uh, you covered the spot-fixing scandal. That's Mohammed Amir, isn't it, who was very young? That's right, yeah. That was one of my last big gigs in the journalism world, I guess. Um yeah, I did a bit of work for uh, the Quick Info website and Associated Press and Newswire. 
that was really interesting. It was a bit weird in a way when you're used to writing about cricket in a press box, you know, in a cricket field environment, all of a sudden you're in a courtroom writing about players who you know personally, mm. who are, uh, you know, in the dark. It, it wasn't a very pleasant experience in that sense, but it was very different, something interesting. I remember seeing the video footage of Bob Wilmer collapsing in the hotel room and following what happened after that. You covered that as well. Have you written about that? Um, I only wrote, not sort of retrospectively, only at the time I was at that World Cup in the West Indies working for uh, various media organisations, but I covered particular incidents specifically for Reuters news agency and... uh, Again, a little bit like the spot fixing one. It was it was weird because me and Bob Warmer had been at dinner about two or three nights before he died, and I knew him personally from when obviously I was covering Warwickshire as a young journalist, and he was the coach. So we went back a few years, then to both be out there, and you know we were talking, and then a couple of days later we had that very shocking uh, death, which was shrouded in mystery at the time but we all got to know after that it was just uh, natural causes but at the time there was a lot of um, innuendo about who could have killed him and all this kind of thing and it was it was a bit of a crazy story but when the dust settled it became a lot sadder then because you, you know you're not doing your job and you realise that you've lost someone who, who was you were quite good friends with and always very helpful to a young journalist like was Bob really nice guy Terrible, and condolences years on. Two years ago, the World Cup, by the barest of margins. Where were you when England won the World Cup? I was watching it at home, actually, um, because not being a journalist anymore, I guess back in the day I would have been there sharing the excitement of everyone else at Lords. but yeah, I was just watching it in my, uh, my lounge at, at home, and my, my son is an amazing drama wasn't it really oh it's sensational lose and then we're going to win and then we're going to lose it was a seesawing dramatic final i turned on just expecting to hear the last over and then it became the last over and then the extra over and it was Mm. great 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 sport and how great that england won um curtly ambrose was one of the figures that i watched 20 years ago on channel four him and courtney walsh scarily good curtly knighted for services to fast balls and you worked on time to talk which was his memoir of 2015 how's he been this last year yeah he's uh, chilling in antigua he's um got a lovely house on a side of a very nice golf course in antigua he plays in a band he plays bass in a, in a reggae band we still talk we've just set up a youtube channel actually with a very talented presenter Karishma Kotak so we've, we've done about eight shows on YouTube at the moment it's called the Kurtley and Karishma show so um, that's ticking along nicely um, hopefully there's a good either commentary or coaching job out there for Kurtley that might come along soon he's, he's definitely got a bit more to offer absolutely and I'm, I will go back to I remember time to talk when it came out uh, I've read some cricket books Dickie Bird's book uh, was excellent. Um, Mike Calvin wrote one with Chef Cookie, which was really, really good. But I would love to read more. I, I know about Marcus Truscothic, whom you either represent or you've done work with. Um, how's his mental health been this last year? 
I don't know that, that much about Marcus lately. I mean, I, I knew him when I used to be a journalist. I interviewed him. He's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet, Marcus. But the fact he's involved with the England team again now, he's a batting coach, and he looks like he's travelling the world again, which he, he wasn't doing for some time. So that's a really nice, yeah. positive sign for him. So I presume he's in a good space at the moment. Absolutely. Just going back to Gurley, when, when, I, when I helped him on his, um, his autobiography, I ghost wrote it. It was it was a fascinating thing to do, really, because he famously didn't really give interviews throughout his career. So when he used to come into my hotel room in St. Kitts, where I did all the interviews, and he was spilling the beans on his life and career in my voice recorder, it was a, a little bit of a surreal moment. You, you kind of asked yourself, is, it, is he really telling me this? Because everyone tried and failed to get his interview for many years, and here he was telling me everything about his life and career. So that was that was a privilege to do, and uh, I think he, he did a great job with, with what he had to say in there. Oh, I, I will read that. It's out in paperback as well. Um, who is his yeah. favourite opening batsman, either to attack or to play with? Yeah, we've, we've talked about things like that in the past. He definitely had a lot of respect for um, his, his former teammates, Gordon Greenwich and Desmond Haynes. As an opponent... He's mentioned um, Graham Gooch a lot. I know he, he felt Gooch was a, a really tough opponent. Same with um, David Boone. He thought he was a tough guy to bowler. Such men would have featured in In the Line of Fire, a book published over 20 years ago uh, about opening batsmen. Whom would you add to have played in the last 20 years to that book? Definitely people like um, Alistair Cook, Andrew Strauss, Verenda Sewag, Matthew Hayden, Justin Langer, Mark Taylor was in there, so too with Michael Slater, who else great opening batsman have we seen in that time. Herschel Gibbs and Graham Smith, they would be in there as well. So that they would be the hardcore of names that spring to mind. That's good. All these names I do recognise. Um, and just if we're talking cricket journalists, I imagine you knew him well. Couldn't bowl, couldn't bat, couldn't field, but otherwise one of the best journalists, Martin Johnson. I read his book, his memoir, which I flew through because I used to read his colour pieces in the Sunday Times. I thought his writing was yeah. tremendous. And if he was anything in real life as he was on the page, he must have been in sensational company. Yeah, I, I won't. I won't lie and say I was his best friend or anything, but he was always um, a friendly character in the press box. You know, he, he used to speak and he loved his golf. He was probably talking to his colleagues in the press box about his recent golfing exploits and, uh, and what was going on in the cricket field. He, he obviously knew, knew his stuff about the cricket, but he, he, he really loved his golf. So, uh, yeah, greatly missed him. And, and like you say, he leaves it really impressive legacy of what he wrote over the years. Yeah, um, because I tried to celebrate uh, football. I call it football criticism, but sports criticism as well, because I don't know if you were told this when you started out. To be a sports writer, I think Mike Calvin or uh, Paddy, Pat Collins may have told me this, you had to be cricket, football and rugby. Those were the big three. And it's yeah. still the case. Um, you've covered football and cricket. Are you much of a rugger person? I don't really know anything about rugby. I, I like to watch the big games and the, the Six Nations or the World Cups, but I, I was never brought up at rugby schools. It was always football or cricket, and my uh, my father always 
push sort of football. I was brought up in an Aston Villa supporting family, so it was all football. I kind of found my own way to cricket, but rugby was was never on the cards. Um, as a journalist, I've covered quite a bit of golf as well. Uh, play a bit of golf myself, so that would probably be my third sport, if anything. Very good. Yeah, lots of golf courses in the Midlands. Have you covered all the big tournaments and Ryder Cups and Walker I've Cups? I covered one Ryder Cup, which was one of the best. It was the last one at the Belfry in. Uh, it was supposed to be two thousand and one, but yeah. obviously because of the, um, the twin towers problem, they were, we got pushed back a year, and uh, we we saw it happened in September two thousand and two. Yeah. So that was fantastic to cover that. Um, I've done one open at Sandwich. I think it was, what was the guy's name? Was it Ben Curtis? Yep, the American Ben Curtis, yeah. Had a very good final round. He won it when I was there. So, um, yeah, but I used to cover a lot of world match plays at uh, Wentworth. Yeah, it was always good fun. And the golfers, I'll tell you what I would say about the golfers. They were such big stars on the world stage, yeah. They were always very approachable and uh, articulate and good to interview. And generally, they were not that. Uh, there's no real egos about them. And on a practice round, you could just wander up to them on a fairway and ask them a few questions, and they'd help you out with a few quotes for stories you were writing. And in fact, somebody showed showed me an old picture that, um, of Sevi Ballesteros with me in the background, sort of walking fast after him trying to get his interview that's uh, <laughs> best part of 20 years ago so that was a nice photo to be reminded of yeah my dad was off single figures and captain the golf club and he was Jack Nicklaus and Seve and Faldo to an extent uh, were his yeah. favourites I suppose there was one golfer who was not approachable uh, Eldrick Woods have you come across Tiger have you been on the end of his tongue I wouldn't say I, I never had like a one-on-one interview with him or anything like that. I've, I've asked him questions in um, we had a, an intimate uh, little press gathering at uh, he might well have been that sandwich open tournament actually. It was probably about three or four of us crowded round him. I think it was after a practice round and just had five or ten minutes with him. He seemed a nice guy there, and and I would have done a couple of press conferences with him during the Ryder Cup as well. And, Came over very well. He always speaks quite eloquently. So, no, I never. Uh, I wasn't silly enough to ask him a controversial question. No, nope. then you would have been blackballed for the rest of your life. So you've you work with sportsmen and you've watched elite sportsmen hit cricket balls, bowl cricket balls, hit golf balls, putt. Um, do you ever think I would like to be one of them? Or would you rather be an observer than a player? Would you rather be the astronaut than the star itself? Oh, I would have loved to have played cricket. I'd love to have been a professional cricketer. I mean, I'm an amateur cricketer now. And if if you know, you know, then what you know now, you can go back. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to go back and do things a bit differently. But um, I think. If I look at things with the uh, the half full mentality, I've been quite fortunate really to have written about sport like football and cricket and met a lot of my heroes of cricket and football, Aston Villa legends, and uh, some of them are now friends. You know, I've been pretty fortunate when I look back, but it's still 
still never anything compared to the dream of actually playing the game. That must be amazing. Yeah. Um, I hope to speak to a lot more pros in my Pros of Pros series. I spoke to Ricky Hill, who's got a book out. You may have seen Ricky Hill play in the 70s and 80s or were Villa too far ahead of Luton. Yeah, I remember him more trying to get his Panini stickers, I think, when I was a young kid. Ricky Hill and Brian Steen and Mel Donaghy, they had a really good team at Luton, didn't yeah. they, under David Cody? Yeah, yeah, yeah I saw that he's got a book out. I hope it does well for him. It's doing well. It's the, a lot of it, there's a big chapter about black coaches, and we're talking on the day that Roy and Way, or Roy Hodgson and Ray Lewington, are stepping down from the Crystal Palace job. I... I really think Palace should appoint a black coach. Obviously, you go by merit. Um, I'm trying to think of a former Villa coach who might be in the running for the job. Um, have you come across Roy Hodgson in your time covering the Villa and English football? No, I've never had any dealings with Roy, actually. Um, only seen what everyone else has seen on the t- TV. I've n- no personal dealings with him, so I don't really know what he's like behind the camera. But... Yes, we wish Crystal Palace well. I suppose it's great news for Watford, my team, who were promoted, and we just have to look for three teams who will do worse than us. And if they get this managerial appointment wrong, they may go down, which is great for us. I do remember that horrible season. It was the kind of please, please make it end season when Villa toppled from the Premier League. Was it the season Benteke couldn't score for Tuppence? Um, I think no, it was the... When we sold Ben Tech and we didn't have him, that's when we got relegated. We had, uh, yeah. we had nobody for and nobody to keep the goals out the other end. It was a dreadful season. No, I'll try and skim over that because we're going to go back to the early 80s. But before I do, you spent a year in Dubai. Is there anything to recommend it? I've uh, had a lot of good times in Dubai. It's a great place to be. It's not everybody's cup of tea. Some people like something different. I worked for a newspaper out there initially and um, it, was, it was really interesting just to see a different side of life. You know, normally I was covering, I was, at that time when I went out in the late 90s, I was used to covering Warwickshire cricket or England cricket and Aston Villa or Midlands football. And then to suddenly go out and you're covering things like, um, you know, the Dubai Desert Classic Golf and you're interviewing the recent open winner like Marco O'Meara on a one-on-one basis and you're interviewing Boris Becker at the Dubai Tennis Classic I think it was called and I was covering Sharjah cricket tournaments and so it was it was really good for me at that time to just um, cover a lot of events that I would never have had the chance to do you know that kind of magnitude at that stage of my career back in England then so uh, I've got a lot of good memories of, of being out there in the Emirates and socially it's a great place to be some of the best restaurants and bars and you know leisure facilities lovely weather so yeah it was a, it was a nice time I was still quite young back then I'm sure but did you not miss Villa Park yeah always you do get to see a lot of games on the telly out there but obviously we see every game right now during this kind of pandemic period but back then it was weird that you could probably see more games of your own team on TV at a place like Dubai than you would back in England because you know, in the late 90s there wasn't many live games or other so yeah, I didn't get to miss too much I don't think I've been to Villa Park ever uh, I've been to Birmingham but I've not as, as a city um, and in fact, as I was uh, just before talking to you, I was watching John Harris 
uh, talking in his Anywhere But Westminster series, um, going to a place in Birmingham where all the billboards had UB40 on them. Did you live through the era of UB40? I was a young kid when they were quite big in the early 80s. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, back in the day when you'd buy seven-inch singles and vinyl. and Yeah, definitely bought red, red wine. I, I was probably one of the many millions who helped that get to number one. But I wasn't a, I wasn't a big UB40 fan. I was more of a Duran Duran fan. And as you know, they were formed in Birmingham. So they was part of that Birmingham music scene around that time. So, But I was still very young then, but I was definitely more into the Duran Duran kind of seen the UB40. I must read that book, Hip Factories, which looks at non-London cities. Carl Whitney wrote this book. And he goes to Manchester, Hull and Sheffield and Birmingham. And it's it's the second city. It's massive. When I went about two years ago, it was, well, they're, they're upgrading it for the Commonwealth. But it is a building site. You can't walk anywhere. And I think next year, and it will go ahead next year, uh, will you get tickets? Do you get given tickets as a Birmingham resident? I've not heard about that, but I'd definitely like to see a couple of events. Um, I know a lot of people at Edgebaston Cricket Ground. I might go and watch a couple of the ladies' cricket games. Um, I've seen Commonwealth games. The bigger events tend to be track and field, don't they? So it'd be nice to see some of the... Um, higher magnitude events like that. I honestly don't know, though, how you get hold of it. It's not something I've looked into, but I um, wasn't fortunate to go and see anything at the London Olympics in 2012. That was the year I got married, so I seemed to be too busy doing other things all that summer. But mm. um, It was all on the telly. It was all online. Yeah. Well, the Commonwealth Games, it would be nice to see a couple of events. So, like you say, it's my home city, so that'd be good. Yeah. Uh, my friend JP is involved in the media side of things, he worked in London and worked in Rio, uh, and he's now working in Birmingham. Uh, so I will ask him. Yeah. I'm sure that you met some people who knew uh, one of the rebels of the 60s. I, I'm not familiar, not familiar even with The Great Escape in terms of Steve McQueen, but when you were writing this biography, which came out in 2013, was this a commission or did you pitch it and write it? It's a good question, actually. It was a bit of a weird one because I started that not long after I became a journalist in the mid-90s. It was a weird one because I was, like I said earlier, I was all doing cricket and football as a freelance, young freelancer in my early 20s. And I just wanted to start writing about this actor who I really admired and I thought it was fascinating. So I started to just do interviews with people who had worked with him. I remember one of one or two of my early interviews was um, Academy Award-winning director, uh, producer Robert Wise. Yep. He he uh, directed Steve McQueen in The Sand Pebbles, but he'd also, I think he won the Academy Award for, was it Sound of Music and West Side Story? So yeah, he, the name rings a bell. Yeah. It amazes me, actually. When I look back to think this rookie journalist that I was at the time could just get this Academy Award-winning director on the phone in Los Angeles and chat for an hour about Steve McQueen, you know. I don't know how I managed to pull that one off, but I spoke to him and spoke to Eli Wallach, who was a famous um, actor. He he acted with uh, Steve McQueen in The Magnificent Seven. So uh, I worked on on that book for about two years and then went off to Dubai, got really busy with my career 
basically did nothing with it for about 10 years. And then by around about something like 2008-9, I then started to think, you know, there's a lot of good material that I started on that McQueen book. Let's get it finished. So I was probably spent another three or four years getting lots more interviews. But by that stage, obviously, the internet had exploded and it was so much easier getting hold of people to interview by then because you can just Google certain names and organizations and things opened up a lot more. So that book ended up going out and it sounded like I worked on it for the best part of like 20 years, but that wasn't really accurate. It was just the fact there was a big gap in there. Uh-huh. And was it received and reviewed well? Yeah, it won a few awards, actually. I can't remember all the awards it won, but it certainly won the Beverly Hills Ooh. Biography of the Year. I think it won the Indie Book Biography of the Year, and it was a bronze medal winner of something or other. It won about three or four awards at the time. I'm not trying to be modest, but I just don't remember the exact titles of the awards. I try to include as many um, books relative to the author in the football library. And if they're cricket or entertainment, uh, they go in as well. I'm sure you're very proud of these books. You do get, by the way, a laminated football library card with Brian Glanville's face on it. Glanville, who is 90 this year. Um, I don't think he was he a cricket fan or was he only football? I think he was known for his football. Actually, I'll tell you what I... My first real um, experience of Brian Glanville was when I was working in Dubai on that, there's a newspaper out there called the Gulf News, which is still going strong now. I learned the art of uh, making up pages at the time. So I wasn't only a sports reporter, you'd have to go and do a bit of sub-editing. So you would take stories from the wires and place them into the papers along with your own exclusive material. And... Everyone in the office was aware when there was a Brian Glanville story on the wires. One of his, one of his syndicated um, columns. We used to use it, so everyone had a lot of respect for 